Welcome to Divorce Dialogues. I'm Katherine Miller. Divorce Dialogues brings expert guests to the airways to talk through your divorce questions and fill in the gray areas about separating. From thinking about divorce, to how to behave during divorce, to what to do after, this is Divorce Dialogues. Welcome to Dialogue on Divorce. I'm Katherine Miller. I'm the founder of the Miller Law Group and director at the Center for Understanding in Conflict. And I'm on a mission to change how people divorce and help them divorce with dignity. And my guest today is Dr. Amy J. L. Baker. She has a PhD in developmental psychology from Teachers College of Columbia University. She's also the co-author of 115 publications, including eight books such as Co-Parenting with a Toxic Ex and The High Conflict Custody Battle. She offers coaching for targeted parents as well as expert witness services. Welcome, Amy. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. So it seems like your history is involved with parental alienation, which is something of great concern to parents, judges, and lawyers in recent years. Tell us a little bit about what parental alienation is and how to recognize it. Sure. So... Parental alienation is generally defined as a family dynamic in which a parent engages in behaviors that are likely to foster a child's unjustified rejection of the other parent. So there are many situations in divorce where children do begin to resist or reject a parent, and alienation is one possible explanation for why a child might be saying, I don't want to go spend time with that other parent, whether it's the mother or the father. Alienation can happen either way in terms of the gender of the parent and the gender of the child. So is one possible explanation for why a child might be resisting visitation and rejecting a parent. It sounds like the parental alienation is rejection by the child that's due to the fault of the other parent, that the other parent is doing something to cause a child or children to feel uncomfortable in some way about spending time with the other parent. That's a lot of parents, but am I making sense? Nope, you did a great job. So the way that we think about it in the field is that four things need to be present in order to say that a child who's rejecting a parent is alienated as opposed to rejecting the parent for some other reason. Perhaps that the rejected parent is something to cause the child to reject him or her. So the four things that need to be present are, one, we need to see a prior positive relationship between the parent who's now being rejected and the child. That is, was there at some point a good bond between the child and the parent? Does the parent have the capacity to form an attachment with the child? So that's the first factor. And if the answer to that is no, then it can't be alienation. If that parent was absent for, you know, years and years or just a terrible, uninvolved parent, it's not alienation if the kid resists contact with the parent. The second factor is absence of abuse. That means that if a parent has abused or neglected a child or engaged in seriously deficient parenting and the child is rejecting that parent, we would not say that that child is alienated. We would say that child is estranged, meaning the rejected parent is the primary cause of the child's rejection. The third factor that has to be present is that the favored parent has to be found to be engaging in what we refer to as the primary parental alienation behaviors. There are 17 behaviors that research shows If a parent engages in them, 
it is likely that the child will form distorted thoughts and feelings about the other parent and subsequently reject that parent. And the fourth factor that needs to be present in order for us to say that a child is rejecting a parent because they're alienated, the fourth factor is that the child is exhibiting eight behaviors that are unique to alienation. They're specific to kids who are alienated, even kids who have been abused and have difficulty with an abusive parent, do not exhibit these eight behaviors. So when you have all four things present, prior positive relationship, absence of abuse or neglect, a favorite parent is doing the things that result in alienation, and the kids are behaving in a very specific way that's consistent with alienation, then we would say that child is alienated. And what are those eight behaviors that demonstrate or illustrate the parental alienation? So. The first one we call the campaign of denigration. That means that the child is vehemently opposed to spending time with that parent. The child isn't just saying, you know, I'm a little more comfortable with this parent or I'd like a little bit less time. These kids are very extreme in their rejection. They show no interest in repairing the relationship. This is still all part of the campaign of denigration. They deny past positive experiences. So if you show the child a picture of themselves having what looks to be a warm and loving moment with the parent they're now rejecting, they will deny it. They will say, oh, dad said he would pinch me if I didn't smile for the camera, or I was just pretending. Some kids will even say, oh, that picture was Photoshopped. That's not really me. They have an inability to admit that they did have a good time with that parent, they do have good memories with that parent, and they do want the relationship to be repaired. This is still just the first of the eight. And just to put it in context, kids who have been beaten, abandoned, molested by a parent do not generally deny past positive experiences, and they don't deny a desire to have the relationship repaired. It's really only alienated kids who, if you ask them, well, what could mom do? to fix this? Or can you imagine ever having a better relationship with that? These kids will say, there's nothing. I have no interest in ever having that relationship fixed. So that's just the first. I know we don't have time to go into all eight, but I just wanted to give you a flavor of what those eight behaviors are. That sounds very extreme and very difficult to deal with. How do you deal with a child who just has zero interest in engaging in a relationship with a parent? It is extremely hard because what a parent thinks would make sense to do the rational, intuitive approach when your kid is being alienated from you, a lot of that is actually unhelpful and even counterproductive. And just as an example, alienated kids often make accusations to the targeted parent you never loved me when I was a baby, or you stole my college money. That's a big one. You stole my college money. That comes up all the time. Even kids who don't know what money is or don't know what college is, they're still righteously indignant. And a targeted parent is likely to think to themselves, my kid is mad at me because my kid believes I did X, whatever it is. And X didn't really happen. That's a lie. So the way that I can get my kid not to be mad at me is to tell them X didn't happen. No, no, I didn't steal your college money. And often the targeted parent will correct the lie by saying things like, how dare you say that? Or who told you to say that? 
or did your father tell you to say that to me? Or you know that's a lie. And any of that kind of rational response, hey, you think a lie about me, I'm going to tell you that's not a lie. You know, that lie didn't happen. I didn't do that. But that does not work. In fact, in taking the example of the you stole my college money, if the parent actually has the bank statement upstairs in their filing cabinet and they race upstairs and they grab the piece of paper and they run downstairs and they wave the piece of paper frantically in the kid's face, look, 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 here's the piece of paper. See, the money's still in the bank. I can almost guarantee you the kid would not even look at the piece of paper. That doesn't mean, by the way, that there's nothing you can do. I'm just telling you that the obvious thing that seems like the right thing to do is actually not the right thing to do. What is the right thing to do? Well, it depends, of course, on the situation. But when you're being falsely accused, what I coach my coaching clients, the targeted parents who I deal with to do is a five-step process. And again, I know we don't have unlimited time here, but I'll walk you through very briefly. The first step is gratitude. You thank the child for telling you what's on their mind. And you say, you know, I'm really proud of you. I love you so much and I care so much about our relationship. I always want to know when you're upset or you have a concern. It's easy to complain about somebody behind their back. It takes courage to come right to me and tell me what's bothering you. And I want to thank you. So that's step one. And then the second step is to pay attention to the emotional state of the child. Are they making the accusation with anger, with hurt, with fear, with worry, with confusion? Look at their body language, their facial expression, their tone of voice, and reflect that back to the child. And so you might say, no wonder you're steaming mad at me. You think I stole your college money. That must hurt so much. I can see in your facial expression and your tone of voice, everything about you is showing me just how angry you are. So you're showing your child in this second step, the first one is gratitude, this is the second step, compassion, that you care more about your child's feelings than you do about protecting your reputation. How dare you accuse me of something? When you have that kind of response, you're showing your child, I don't really care about your feelings, I just don't want you saying anything bad about me. So this is sort of the opposite of that. It's showing your child, hey, I really care about your emotional state. The third step is empathy. That's where you would imagine what it's like to be your child and think that your father stole your college money. So you might say something like, you know, I would be really upset too if I thought my father stole my college money. I would think, hey, how am I supposed to pay for my college? What's the deal? How come you did this? Weren't you ever going to tell me? What else are you lying about? You're just kind of imagining what it would feel like to be in that place that your kid is at. You're completely putting yourself in their shoes. The fourth step is the step that everybody wants. That's where you actually correct the record. And steps one, two, and three, I advise people spend six or seven sentences. Really get in there. Step four, one sentence. You simply say, you know, that didn't actually happen. That's it. With no energy, no anger, no recrimination, no pride, how dare you think that I would do that, no ego, just, you know, that didn't actually happen. And then step five is you just go right back to compassion and you say, but I understand that you think I did. And that's really all that matters right now. How can we fix this? You know, as you're talking, 
Dr. Baker, I think it's really so obvious that this is what is needed, but it's not intuitive. (laughs) It's not the first go-to, right? Yes, that's a great distinction between obvious after the fact, but not intuitive before the fact. When you're in it and you're being attacked and falsely accused, especially if this is, you know, false accusation 453 and you are worn down and you know, plenty either depressed or angry, which is how targeted parents end up, you know, reacting, it is very demoralizing to be a targeted parent and you feel very much maligned. And they want to sort of set the record straight. And they get so caught up in setting the record straight that they completely forget that their kid is there hurting. Yeah, it becomes really two-dimensional. Yeah, there's a lot of landmines like that in being a targeted parent, and inadvertently, targeted parents end up reacting in ways, either through anger or depression, that reinforce the original poisonous message, which is that targeted parent is unloving, unsafe, and unavailable. This is Dialogue on Divorce. We're here on WVOX 1460 AM every other Wednesday from 5 to 5.30. And we're also available on the show's podcast website, which is www.divorcedialogues.com, as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Catherine Miller, and I'm talking today with Dr. Amy J. L. Baker about parental alienation. And Dr. Baker is really an expert about parental alienation, both in terms of identifying and coaching targeted parents. And Dr. Baker, I think it would be wonderful if you would give our listeners your contact information in case they have any questions for you or you could be of service to them. Sure. So my website is just my name, amyjlbaker.com. So that's A-M-Y, then the letter J, the letter L, B-A-K-E-R.com. My phone number is on there. My email address is on there. Information about my coaching, my expert witness services, all my books, everything is up there on my website. It's a kind of one-stop shop. Super. And let me ask you this question. For the, I think you called this person the favored parent, the parent engaging in the alienating behaviors, is that person always aware of what they're doing? I would say nothing is always or never. Some seem to be rather malicious and intentional. I know cases where the favored parent has said sort of like the evil genius, ha ha, I'm going to turn your children against you. But that's not the most common pattern. It seems to me that intentionality is sort of on a continuous scale from zero to a hundred. Zero is the person has no idea what they're doing and a hundred is they're, you know, an evil genius and they've planned it all out. I would say most people fall somewhere in the middle. And to me, the true test of intentionality is whether they change their behavior once it's been pointed out to them, you know, by the courts or by a therapist or a GAL or, you know, some other credible source, not necessarily the targeted parent. You know, so there's a subset who probably correct their behavior once it's pointed out, but the cases that I work on, by the time they go to court, for example, and I'm an expert witness, we're talking about people who are really not at all willing to modify their behavior, no matter what anybody else is telling them. You know, even if the courts or the GAL are saying, listen, you've got to stop this, you know, stop sharing information with the kids, don't leave your documents out, stop referring to the other parent by his or her first name, et cetera, et cetera, you know, going down the list of the primary parental alienation behaviors. There is a subset who simply will not modify their behavior. 
So I would say if it didn't start off intentional, it became intentional over time. And what should a parent do if they think the other parent is engaging in parental alienation? And does the court system really help with that? It really depends. You know, the first thing to do is to start documenting and look and see if there are patterns. You know, there are these 17 behaviors. You could start like a binder and have a tab for each of the 17 behaviors and keep track. You also do have to look at yourself. It's an appealing hypothesis. You know, there's nothing wrong with me. It's the other parent who's creating all the tension between me and the kid. It's possible that's true, but it's also possible that your parenting isn't quite up to snuff. And what worked when you were married and the other parent filled in for you or covered for you or supported you doesn't necessarily work when all of a sudden you're along with the kids. And it does, I think, behoove everybody who's in conflict with their kids to look at themselves first. But assuming that you've looked at yourself and you really feel like you are not the problem, the next step is to start documenting the 17 primary parental alienation strategies, which ones are happening, the same thing with the eight behaviors of the child, are your kids exhibiting those behaviors? And in one of my books, the one called The High Conflict Custody Battle, my colleagues and I really provide step-by-step guidance for people about how to organize your documents for your attorney, how to organize them for the courts, how to prepare for a custody evaluation. Here's another piece of the whole situation that is counterintuitive. When people end up either meeting with a GAL or an attorney for the child or a custody evaluator or even a judge, they think, targeted parents think, that they just need to convince the other person that alienation is the problem. And they're very, very strident and very determined. And they have an agenda to make this mental health or legal professional see things from their point of view. And they're very righteously indignant. And they have a reason to be. And they feel very victimized. And they have a reason to be. But that kind of presentation is a big turnoff for a custody evaluator who's likely to conclude, ugh, this person, they don't listen, they're so anxious, they're agitated, all they want to do is talk about alienation, they're not self-reflective, no wonder the kids don't want to see them. So the thing that the targeted parent thinks is the right thing to do, which is to stridently make the case with lots and lots of documents and present it in a very determined way to the custody evaluator or some other legal or mental health professional, that approach often does not work. And what do you suggest they do instead? Be a very good listener. Be aware of their presentation. Literally, are they sitting on the edge of the seat or are they, you know, sitting in a comfortable way? Like all these little things, how agitated they are, how much interrupting they're doing, how self-reflective they seem, all of these things factor into the perception that the judge might have of them or that the custody evaluator has of them. And oftentimes, a more balanced approach is what is better. Where they take some Um, responsibility themselves as well. Yeah. And to to point out the positives of the favorite parent, if there are any, it's never a good idea to say, you know, they're the worst parent in the world. They never did anything, you know, to help the kids. I was around. I did everything. That kind of extreme language is a red flag for other people who think, oh, this is a person who really doesn't sort of see the gray. They're very black and white in their thinking. And then that is a red flag. 
So it helps when you're meeting with any one of these people to be balanced, to be self-reflective, and to listen to the questions that are being asked and to try to answer those questions rather than using every question as an opportunity to bash the other person as an evil alienator. I often recommend not even using that term and saying, I think the other parent is undermining and interfering in my relationship with the kids. That often goes over better than saying, oh, you know, they're doing that alienation thing. Well, I, I think it's probably never a good idea to sort of diagnose and use a sort of term of art or a diagnosis. The other parents are narcissists. They've got borderline personality disorder. These things, I think, overstep the expertise of the parent and start to lead the professional to think suspiciously of their motivations. Do you think yes, that's right? I could not agree more. And you know what? If they're an alienator, they probably are a borderline or a narcissist, but it doesn't help your case to start diagnosing the other person. It looks like you aren't willing to take any responsibility. The more humble you can be, the better off you're going to be in that setting. This is the part that's so hard for targeted parents to understand. The custody evaluator is paying as much attention to how he or she feels in the room with the targeted parent as they're paying attention to the facts as they're being presented by the targeted parent. And that's so interesting because the desperateness that I think people feel when they have lost connection or relationship with their children is so present on them all the time, and they feel so urgent about it that it can be so hard to soften that and to listen and engage instead of just campaign the entire time. Is there anything that people can do to help themselves bring themselves to that conversation in a less desperate way? I think it's about practicing, you know, being aware, first of all, having these kinds of conversations with a coach or somebody else, practicing answering questions and really listening to the question that's being asked. And I think it's really about being aware of how you are appearing to the other person. And the shorthand that we use in the field is that the targeted parent is anxious, agitated, afraid, and has an agenda. And if you can be aware of that and try to manage your anxiety and manage your fear in that setting and not having an agenda, it's going to help. And of course, the other parent is calm, cool, and collected because they have the kid on their side already. So they feel like they have the upper hand. And if they are a narcissist and they're going to be, you know, suave and attractive and, you know, appealing on some, you know, visceral level. Dr. Baker, I know you have limited time today, but do you have time to tell us what your experience of how the court system helps or hurts people in this situation? Well, it's very much a mixed bag. It's pretty much judge by judge whether they get alienation, whether they're interested in learning about it, whether they think it's happening in a particular case. And I think that it's very, very hit or miss. You could have a great judge and a lousy attorney and still probably do okay. You could have, you know, a great attorney and a mixed judge and you still would be okay. But, you know, the people who really have a difficult time are the ones who have attorneys who don't get it and the judge who doesn't get it. And I've testified all around the country, and I've had situations where, you know, my best case scenario, the judge during the lunch break buys my book 
and then brings the counsel in and says, this is our roadmap for the rest of the case, you know, and then I've had the extreme opposite where the judge is probably playing solitaire on his computer while I'm testifying. And I think one of the answers is much more training for legal professionals before the judges become judges, while they're still attorneys, and then, of course, following them through their careers as judges, because there's a lot of do's and don'ts for judges that they don't necessarily know about. Like, how many times are you going to slap somebody's wrist, metaphorically speaking, as they're violating court orders? Judges tend to give enormous amount of leniency on favored parents who don't produce the kids or don't take them to therapy or don't do, you know, whatever else they're supposed to be doing. And judges really need to get, I think, more support in making some tough decisions. It seems to me that judges really don't like doing anything other than supporting the status quo. You know, so if a, if a parent takes a kid and never returns them to the other parent, if that parent gets to keep the kid for a certain amount of time, even if they took the kid and it was wrong, the judge is going to think, oh, the kid's there, they're doing okay, why rock the boat? Yeah, I think so that ju- judges... Go ahead. So when I testify, I've identified 11 reasons why the court should intervene, because I know that they have this built-in bias to not rock the boat. And if the kids are doing well, the judge might say, oh, the kids are doing great, so who cares if it's alienation? It can't be hurting them. Or if the kids aren't doing well, it'll be, oh, we can't rock the boat, the kids aren't doing well. So they have a reason, basically, to do nothing. And so I walk them through brain development. I walk them through all the long-term negative consequences to alienation, how it's a form of abuse. I try to bring them all the way through so that by the end of my testimony, they feel, oh, I better do something. It would be worse to do nothing than to do something. If I can get the judge to that place, then I've succeeded. That sounds, that's really great, really great insight, Dr. Baker. We're out of time on Dialogue on Divorce. Thank you so much for being our guest. It's been really informative. You're welcome. Thanks for having me.